Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Hallelujah. Now, you see, we'll start on a very fundamental um, foundational notes. This is solid Deo Gloria. <laughs> Means to the glory of God alone. And half of what I'm, I'm about to share this night will just be a recap of what I shared first night in Port Harcourt, just so I can carry everyone along. And then half the way, I launch you into what I have for this night. In, if I was to give a title for that sermon, first night of Potakot, I would call it the glory of God in the incarnation. And if I'm to give a title for tonight's sermon or tonight's teaching, I would call it the glory of God in the gospel. I'm laying a theological foundation. Sermons like this are likely to be more informative than stirring. But they are so important. Let me tell you something. A church is built by doctrine. And in camp meetings like this, we must pay close attention. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 16 that Paul and Silas were in prison, having been arrested just for preaching the gospel and for casting out demons from a girl. But the Bible says that at midnight, they prayed and they sang praises to God. And then suddenly, suddenly, the Bible says there was a great earthquake. Can you imagine that? Not because the plates of the earth shifted, but because two men prayed. There was a great earthquake. And the foundations of the prison shook. All the doors opened. And all the chains of all the prisoners fell off on their own accord. Imagine how terrified the jailer felt when he woke up from his sleep to see all the prison doors opened. He assumed, like anyone would, that all the prisoner that prisoners had already run away. So having thought about what the magistrates would do to him, he drew his sword and was ready to kill himself, was ready to fall on it. But Paul screamed. And said, lay no harm to yourself. We're in here. And he said, what? You're in there. He gets his touch. His Asian touch. Fire. Don't think battery. Fire. <laughs> and he comes into the prison trembling. Falls on his knees in front of these two men. And he asks the question, that is the most important question asked in the entire Bible. He said, Saz, what must I do to be saved? In camp meetings like this, I have a mandate from God first and foremost to do the work of an evangelist. And to answer that important question, what must I do to be saved? And just in case you think it's a question that everybody has the answer to, you are wrong. 
it saddens my heart that not many Christians know the answer to that question. In fact, many churches are mission fields. There are many people in church who have never truly heard the gospel before. Seems like we've mastered everything except the main business of the church, which is saving souls. What shall a man do to be saved? And it's no small question. When you know who man is and who God is, it's no small question. I read a text I want to read today again. Turn your Bibles quickly. Isaiah chapter 6 from verse 1. Just to, just to create a perspective about the weightiness of that question. It's no small thing. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne. Hi, everybody say hi. hi. Say lifted up. lifted up. Now, these positions are important. I saw him high and lifted up. His train filled the temple, verse 2. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain they covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he flew. Listen, listen, listen. As important as wings are, they were willing to sacrifice four just for covering. That's how sacred the presence of God is. So out of six wings, only two are used for flying. Because you dare not stand before the Holy One exposed. Are you listening to me? Verse 3. Everybody read verse 3 together. Loud as you can. One to go. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled. I mean, just think about that. A God so high, so great, that even angels dare not look. The thrice holy one. You see, in those days, they had no exclamation mark. And so to exclaim, they just repeated the words more than once. Holy, holy, holy. That's enough exclamation. That's the God you want a relationship with, you have to understand from a practical sense, it's impossible for a man to have a relationship with God. It's impossible. God and man are like water and oil. They don't mix. How? How do you go about it? It's a practical impossibility. It is more conceivable to approach the sun than to approach God. Are you listening to me? The text doesn't end there. This tells you about the holiness of God. Then verse 4, in contrast, tells you about men. All right, verse 4 and 5, yeah, the doorpost was shaken and the voice of him who cried out, the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5, so said I, woe is me. I'm undone. Listen, God is so holy, you'll be in trouble if you show up in his presence. 
A lot of people don't understand this. I'm undone. I'm in trouble. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst people of unclean lips. What am I doing here? I'm in trouble. I just might die. He's so holy, even the best of your efforts will only put you in trouble. The ark is about to fall. I know you were trying to help, but don't you get, no contact is allowed. Don't you get it? It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Laws are laws. And if no one ever told you about the law of gravity, you still won't be spared if you fly from three-story buildings. Come on, are you with me? What must a man do to be saved? You see, one of the most laughable doctrines in the church is that Elijah and Elisha were walking one day and all of a sudden a chariot of fire came, whisked Elijah away and carried him straight to heaven. You don't even understand how ridiculous that is. It's because we've not learned to study the Bible properly. Now someone says, what's the big deal? You see, like many false teachings, it seems harmless. We don't understand the implication. But do you realize that if Elijah went to heaven before Christ came, and Enoch went to heaven before Christ came, it makes the coming of Christ useless. Why then did he come? It means he lied when he says, I am come that you may have life. You didn't need to come for us to have life if Elijah is in heaven. You have to understand the implications of such doctrine. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one could go to the Father except by him. You think the God you just read about in Isaiah 6, Elijah was ready to face him? You think that? I don't really have time to explain what really happened to you. I have teachings on it. One of them is Yeshua, the resurrection, I think. You know, I, and I have a teaching, where is Elijah, where is Enoch? That's a vintage sermon. I don't know if you will find that. But I'll just give you four texts that tell you categorically that no man had been to heaven before Christ. Look at John, very quickly. John chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus is speaking. Let me tell you something. Every one of us had that classmate in secondary school who, you, who was a terrible liar. <laughs> and will exaggerate things like his father's wealth and all those kind of things. You know, you, you know we all had, you know... God saved my soul. I told one or two lies then. <laughs> We're all saved by grace. <laughs> you know, I remember someone who told us that he had a PlayStation game that you could load seven cities at the same time. <laughs> and I thought that was horrible until my wife told me about someone in a secondary school who said... Um, 
they had many swimming pools in their house, and the father, out of his generosity, gave one out. <laughs> they just told a visitor, take. I think, I think that's it. So listen, it doesn't matter who told you Elijah was in heaven. If Jesus came from heaven and tells you no one is there, you better believe him. And so when John chapter 3 verse 13, he says, no one. <laughs> Come on, are you with me? He said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. He says, as at this time, there has only been a descent. No one has ascended. I mean, that's as clear as it gets. I don't even have to do much exegesis. You see, any other exegesis is just to iron out the details. But if Jesus has told you this, let's go home. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 18. I want you to open it. We have to read this one. You have to see it yourself. John chapter 1, verse 18. Everybody read together loud as you can. One, two, go. No one has seen God at any time. I like the fact that they put at any time. <laughs> no one in any way, shape, or form has seen God. Listen, you won't appreciate the incarnation if you don't understand that no man had seen God. No man has seen God at any time. And then, this is the most conclusive for me. In Hebrews chapter 11, you see the compendium of all the heroes of faith. Elijah, Enoch, and all your faiths inclusive. And then in verse 13, he says, this all died. <laughs> Excuse me, are you awake? He says, this all died in faith. Not having received the promises. Eternal life was promised. They hadn't received it. Listen. Don't, don't kid yourself. God is so unapproachable. There's a theological term for it. I'll give you two of them. God is holy. That's what it means. Holiness means distinction. All right? It means to be separate from what is common. It means what? To be separate from what is common. Let me give you an example. Because you see, holiness has a context amongst humanity. Anything separate from what is common is holy. So in human context, there, is, there are things that are holy to us. For instance, every day can be a normal day, but then we have holidays. Holidays actually mean holy days, meaning these days have a deeper sense of value to us. Are you getting what I'm saying? During my IT, I worked with Julius Berger, and I was assigned to work at the governor's office, the governor of Lagos State, because there was a construction we were doing there. And as you can imagine, the place is filled with security officials. And in fact, there's a barracks just side by side. I think they did that on purpose. First day at work, 
I'm just walking. And I didn't pay attention to a sign, no thoroughfare. Have you ever seen a sign like that before? Just in case you don't know, if you see a sign like that, it means you are entering holy ground. <laughs> I'm explaining holiness to you. So as I just passed, in fact, I was even in the spirit listening to worship, you know, my earplugs. A soldier just called me, come. <laughs> True life story, yo. He just said, pick that broom. Sweep this place. He said, you went to school, Abi. You know, you know how they talk. Can you read? Read that thing. <laughs> what was it? He said, sweep. So now I'm sweeping. I'm like, I'm like, oh my God. Is this how we sweep the whole Lagos? <laughs> Lord, help me. Lord, help me. You know, and the Lord answers prayers. As I was praying, another person just crossed the place. The soldier says, oh yeah, well, you come. You leave the broom. You pick that. I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it's the doctrine of atonement. <laughs> Listen. Listen. Anyway, I didn't actually say thank you, Jesus. I was just glad. <laughs> but because of how important the governor is, you're expected to treat that environment as a place that is not common. Do you get the idea? And that's what holiness is. That's what holiness is. Eventually, my supervisor was coming. At, of course, at that time, I had an ID card, and that gave me immunity. But you see, those who are familiar with Lagos know that area. People who don't really know that road, if you drive in the wrong streets, you're in trouble. And so the supervisor was out there waiting for me. But he couldn't come in. I had the pass, so I came in. As we were, as we were walking, he saw an elderly man. I'm sure that man has grown-up kids at home. The man was doing frog jump. He had parked his car. He was doing frog jump because he didn't know and he drove that way. So my supervisor said, you know, stay close to me so that these people won't embarrass me, you know. I felt tempted to stop and say, wait, what score will you give me first? <laughs> tell me here. Tell me here. That's it. Now, I said all of that to say this. If the governor is so important that you need some level of decorum around him, how much more God? If you were to make a hierarchy of created things, microbes, aquatic animals, mammals, man, angels, you know, God outclasses everything and everyone. Leads me to the next theological term I want to teach you so that you hear it somewhere else and you know what it is. God is transcendent. T-R-A-N-S-E-M-S-C-E-N-D-E-N-T. -E -E transcendent. It means infinitely above anything we know or can know. Anything or anyone. Infinitely above anything and anyone. Think about it. Listen, do you know I walked, how long was I till now? For months, I can't remember, about six months. And I never saw the governor once. We were in the same environment. 
Of course, I saw the convoy go in and go out. But never, you know, you can't just go there and knock. <laughs> so, how does an ordinary man build a relationship with, is he not my governor? <laughs> I, I'm painting a picture. Then how much more God? How, how do you start? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? This is so important. Don't forget while answering the question, how can a man be saved? What can a man do to be saved? What is man that God should be mindful of him? Why should he look at you? Why should he consider you? Why should he care what you have to say, what you're doing? Paul described the transcendence of God this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. It says, who alone is immortality dwelling in unapproachable light? Can you say unapproachable light? It says, whom no man has seen or can see. It says, to him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Say loud, amen. amen. Listen, in every true presentation of the gospel, you will see two things. Number one, the utter helplessness of man. And number two, the sovereign intervention of God. God is so great, if he has any relationships, it's because he initiated it. You have to understand that. The utter helplessness of man and then the sovereign intervention of God. And this is the goodness of God, that though man could never in a thousand galaxies approach him, he chose to approach man. Say loud, amen. amen. I built this foundation already. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 from verse 1, it says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. In verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh, dwelt amongst us. I can't even say it with a straight face. Listen, I don't know how to capture this. I told you already in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul exclaimed, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's a great mystery, a great privilege. God was manifest in the flesh. It's a great mystery. Seeing of angels, even angels, finally got the opportunity to see the glory of God manifest. That was their first opportunity. In the incarnation, God was seen for the first time. You have to understand how special that is. Now, that's where I stopped in Portacot. And this is where I want to continue. As beautiful as the incarnation was, it was not enough. The incarnation only rebuttressed everything we knew about God. He outclasses us in every way. Imagine, he came as a man but he was a sinless man. At every point, he was tempted, yet without sin. How do you measure up to that? Just how? Like, how can we ever... He showed us how it should be done. The Bible tells us that he was 100% man. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. Yet, the kind of miracles he was doing, sleeping in a boat... And the next thing, the boat is about to sink. They just wake him up. He just says, oh, you faithless generation. 
and he speaks three words. Come on, are you listening to me? Peace! Be still. And then there's a great calm. What kind of, what kind of man is this? No one ever spoke like him. No one ever acted like him. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? It was nice to see, but it doesn't really change us. And then as if that's not enough, he dies. And just when you're beginning to grasp the part, you know, maybe the fact that he was like us, on the third day he rises again. The stone is rolled away. And then he's going about for 40 full days, eating and fellowshipping with the disciples. Nah. So, how does the incarnation change anything? That's what I want to show you. What, what, what has changed since the incarnation? The answer is everything. Because here is what you need to know. Oh, Matea, God didn't just become a man. Are you listening to me? He became a covenant man. This changes everything. This changes everything. If you see all the nice things he did in the incarnation, you might say, oh, that's nice. But when you understand he is God's covenant man. It changes everything. You see how it benefits you. Listen, this is the doctrine. One man sinned. We call him Adam, but I told you he was never named. Adam was not his name. Adam is the Hebrew word for mankind. Just in case... There are some people here who are hearing me say this for the first time. Put up Genesis chapter 5 verse 2, fast as you can. Genesis chapter 5 verse 2. I didn't plan to show this. It says, he created them, male and female, and blessed them and called their name mankind. So, now this is NKJV. KJV says he called their name Adam. Adam was the name of all of us. So you have to understand that single man was all of us. Both biologically and spiritually. Listen, listen. This is the logic. God wanted to create an entire human race. He created one. From the rib of that man, he created a woman. And through procreation, all of us came to be. So that man was God's covenant man. Whatever he did, we did. Just in case you never understood how that one man sinned and something passed to all men. I just explained it to you. It was a title. And now, you need to understand that in the incarnation, we don't just see God becoming a man. We see a second Adam. Now, that means this is our chance. This is our opportunity. Everything that went wrong can be corrected. Now, all of a sudden, we begin to appreciate everything he did right. That he lived a sinless life. Do you now know what it means that he died and rose again? That he died and rose again? Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 19. Oh, do you love the word of God? Yes, I want you to read this with as much gratitude as you have in your being. 
Are you ready? Yes, One, two, go. Glory to God. It says for us, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Listen, this is what baptism is. A lot of people think it's about pouring water. Baptism is a spiritual operation by which we become beneficiaries of the redemptive work of Christ. You are a part of the first Adam by birth. You are a part of the second Adam by baptism. That's what baptism is. A spiritual operation that by grace we become participants of the benefits and the blessings of the redemptive work of the second Adam. That's what baptism is. If I have enough time, I will explain that to you more as we move on. But now... You now see it differently that a man died and a man rose again. You see it differently because he is God's covenant man. Oh, finally, the sting of death is gone. Listen, by the normal observation, you see all that God did in Christ and you're like, oh, God is powerful, oh. You mean Jesus died and rose again? But through the lens of revelation, you see that God was not just showing forth power in Christ's life, but in your life. This is what Paul was praying that you will see. He says that the eyes of your understanding will be flooded with light. To know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of his power, not in Christ, but us world who believe. He says the power which he wrought in Christ in raising him from the dead was power us world. It benefited us. He, he wants you to see that. He wants you to see that. That when Christ died, you died. When Christ was buried, you were buried. When Christ was raised, you were raised. And listen. You read Isaiah chapter 6. And you know, the, the, the man who saw that vision, it, he wasn't even there. It was just a vision, yet he was in trouble. He said, woe is me. But then juxtapose that with Psalm chapter 24, what theologians call the ascension psalm. That indeed, Christ died. He rose again. And after dwelling with his disciples 40 days, he ascends to the very heaven where even angels will not dare look. Talk less of man. No man had ever been there. And for the first time, a man stands before the doors. And in verse 7 says, lift up your heads. A man, he said, lift up your head, all you gates. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors. 
and all the angelic beings behind the doors. They couldn't believe their ears. No man ever made it this far. How dare you talk to these doors? Place your hand on the latch of his walls. Who are you? Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? And then to that he responds, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. He said, lift up your head, O ye gates. Be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the king of glory may come in. This is the glory of God and the gospel. And for the first time ever, those gates were rolled up for a man. And then he walks in majestically. And every bean, every bean hit the floor. Singing to him all hail the power of Jesus. Let angels prostrate forth, fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. Crown him Lord of all. And as a theologian washer tells the story, he, he walks confidently to the throne. It was his rights. He didn't ask permission. And he goes to the right hand of God and he sits. Listen, don't you understand? There is a man in heaven. Did you hear what I just said? There is a man in heaven seated at the right hand of God. And then he looks to the Father and he says, It is finished. The father looks to him and says, son, yes, it is finished. And so now Paul is writing by revelation. In Ephesians chapter 2, he first tells the story of your past. It says, you are the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It says in time past, listen, he sees it as a thing of the past for those who believe. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that walks in children of disobedience. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. He says, but God. Listen, you have not even, you have, you're not mesmerized yet. He says, but God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. He says, even when we were dead in sins, has what? Listen. Listen, in the eyes of an observer, only Christ died. Only Christ was buried. Only Christ was raised. But in the eyes of God, he says he has quickened us together. He said, by grace are you saved. He said, and he has raised us up together and made us sit together. Listen, right now it looks like your location is Maha Event Center. But you are seated with Christ. You are seated. Think about it. Listen, once upon a time, a man who saw a vision of the throne room said, kill me already. I'm in trouble. But now, that's where you sit. 
that's where you sit. This is the glory of God in His gospel. We see Him, the second Adam, our great high priest. Listen, in the Old Testament temple, we are told of all the furniture in the temple. We are told of the Ark of the Covenant, the shoe bread and everything. One thing we are never told was existed, existent in that place was a chair. Because guess what? It was not a place to go in and sit. It was a scary place. Do you know that even the high priest, when you go in, they had to tie a chain? Because it was so devastating that if you die there, no one can even come in to brawl you out. So they have to just drag the chain. And the reason why there was no chair was, was to signify the fact that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. So why sit down when you have to come back? But your high priest, your real high priest, went into the real heavens. And after he had offered himself, he sat down. <laughs> Listen, brothers and sisters, this is the seventh day. This is the day of rest. No sacrifice will be required for sins anymore. That sacrifice once and for all is enough. I see him seated. My debt is paid. This is my Sabbath. This is my rest. And by his blood, I have forgiveness. I am who he says. I am. You see, all the religions in the world have one thing in common. They think you will be saved by what you do. They have that in common. They think you'll be saved by what you do. And Paul wants to help you. You see, this was the problem of the Jews. They were so fixated on what they could do. What sacrifice, you know, Paul full of emotions. He says, my heart's desire is that all of Israel will be saved. He says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You can be zealous for the things of God and not be saved. See, coming to church regularly is not salvation. Trying not to sin is not salvation. Listen, no true man of God will make light of moral excellence. It's important. It is noble to dress right and to live right. But guess what? Morality is not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. He says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. So there is a type of righteousness God calls your own. That's for your pocket. It doesn't count with God. It says, for Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to all who believe. And now, 
he's correcting the impression many people will have in trying to answer the question, what can a man do to be saved? Don't, don't be preoccupied with what you think you can do. Don't be preoccupied with activity. He said, say not in your heart, who shall ascend to the heaven that is to bring Christ down? Or to descend to the grave that is to bring Christ up again? He said, what's it? He said, the word is nigh thee. Even in your heart and in your mouth, that if you, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He says, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Listen, our high priest is alive. And this is the provision of God, that if anyone believes that God has raised Jesus from the dead, he shall be saved. If you believe that his death was efficacious for the blotting of your sins, and that all who believe in his resurrection will rise, you shall be saved. That's what it is. That's the word of faith that we preach. This is the gospel of salvation. My eyes see Jesus high and lifted up. My eyes see Jesus seated on the throne. Come on, sing, I have. I have. Conviction, I see my place. I see my place in his world, and what he did, he said, He died and rose, and so did I. I am who he says. I see him seated. My death is paid. This is my Sabbath. And this is my rest. And by his blood, I have forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you are from, the sacrifice of Jesus is bigger than your flaws. Once you believe once, His power and His grace will keep you to the end. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.